Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization and the host of the Capitol Beach. I am extraordinarily excited to be hosting today's podcast because I'm speaking with two very special guests. I'm actually speaking with two United States senators, Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. And we are going to be discussing a bill called the RISE Act, which is essentially a revenue sharing bill, meaning it directs funding from the lease of offshore energy production, oil and gas production in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, wind production, offshore wind production across the country, and directs that revenue back to coastal states for coastal resilience. Uh, it's a bill that was introduced last Congress, has been reintroduced this Congress, and, and we hope to see come up and, and pass and become law. Uh, or at least we at Coastal States have, have issued the support statement for it. Really excited to speak to both senators about it, but first let's hear from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining me today, Senator Cassidy. Uh, Really glad to have you. I'm very pleased to be with you and pleased about the topic, pleased to be discussing the topic. Uh, well, g- glad you can join us because you're the one who's helping make this uh, make this a reality. So we are here today to mainly talk about a bill that you have introduced with Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island called the Reinvesting in Shoreline Economies and Ecosystems. Uh, that's RISE, although there are two E's on it, RISE Act, that ensures um, revenue, federal revenue from offshore energy production, whether that's wind or traditional oil and gas, is used to build coastal resilience in the states and communities closest to that energy production. Um, But before we get into the details of this legislation, let's briefly touch on uh, some background for why this bill is needed. Uh, Most of our listeners are probably familiar with coastal land loss crisis facing Louisiana, but was hoping that uh, you as senior senator and and, uh, a longtime Louisiana can give a quick version, uh, can give us your quick version. What's happening in Louisiana? Why is it so important that the federal government support coastal restoration and resilience in Louisiana? And why is it important to the nation um, that uh, coastal Louisiana is restored? First, um, all states of our, every place is being affected by sea level rise, Louisiana more so than others. In fact, we have the greatest amount of land loss, and that's because we have the greatest amount of relative sea level rise. Of course, relative sea level rise means not just the water rising because of um, uh, ice caps melting, but it's also the sinkage of the land. The sinkage of the land is related to several things. First, in 1928 or 27, when the great Mississippi flood occurred, the Mississippi was levied so as to prevent flooding, but also as John Barry points out in his book, Rising Tide, levees were placed for the benefit of inland ports so that they could more reliably ship their goods to international markets. So Louisiana, if you will, has levees, not just for ourselves, but for others. 
When that happened, it cut off the flow of nutrients down distributary bayous that would otherwise nourish the land. The second thing that is, so therefore the land is not being nourished, it tends to sink. The second thing that has occurred is that uh, water and minerals, gas and oil, have been extracted from beneath the surface. And so therefore there's less support, if you will, and the land tends to sink. I remember when I was a child, I can't remember the song, but there was a song about the trembling prairies. And someone pointed out to me that the water table was so high that the, that the prairie felt like it was trembling because of high water table. Well, now there's so many communities tapping into water tables that has sunk, but then the land has sunk along with it. There's one place in New Orleans, and I'll just, I mean, excuse me, I'll finish this up. One place in Louisiana, which I'm told has lost nine feet of elevation because of everything I've just described. Uh, far greater than any place else in the continental United States or in the extended United States. Um, we've lost more land than um, the entire state of, of uh, Delaware. And by the time we finish this interview, uh, we may have lost half a football field. So it's an incredible issue. Real challenge. Um, and obviously, uh, Louisiana is, is such an important place for uh, oil and gas production for the entire country. Seafood, you know, why is this, why is this a federal issue and not just a Louisiana issue? Well, first, you can argue that the major contributor is the damming of the Mississippi. At the time, I once looked this up, and, and there was an article that said, listen, we know that damming the levee is going to cause a, a negative effect upon, upon Louisiana's coastline. So we're going to come up with a Mississippi River and tributary system, and we're going to make it up to you. Well, that didn't quite work out. There is an MRT program, but the uh, attempt to offset the loss of Mississippi River flow, giving nutrition to our land, uh, has not been compensated for. And by the way, recall I said those levees were constructed, read John Barry's book, Rising Tide, for the benefit of inland ports. So there is a way in which we are capturing this, um, the, the, the kind of negative um, in order to benefit others. Secondly, Louisiana has a working coastline. If you look at the oil and gas that flows not just in, but also out of our country, um, it, most of it flows off the coast of Louisiana. Uh, so the, the, um, uh, it's like it's, I'm a doctor. So if you look at the pipeline system that flows out of Louisiana, it's like you have a heart. Louisiana, particularly the southern coast, is the heart. And then you have the arteries just pumping that energy needed for a modern economy across the rest of the nation. Um, um, lastly, I will point out that three of the largest ports in the nation by tonnage are in Louisiana. So if you're a farmer in Missouri and you want to get your goods to international markets, then you're shipping through the port of Baton Rouge or the port of South Louisiana, the port of New Orleans to international markets. Uh, you cannot have a functioning inland agricultural market, inland in the United States, without South Louisiana ports. And so we are economically important to the rest of the nation. Yeah, all, all great reasons. And I'm, I'm sure we could come up with a dozen more. Uh, Louisiana is just such a critical part of the nation's economy. Um, but this is a, a, a policy podcast, and we like to dig into wonky things. And so I'm going to pivot to some policy stuff uh, before we get into the RISE Act, which, um, amongst other things, amends 
a legislation called the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, or GOMESA. Uh, I think it's important to give a quick overview of what GOMESA is. Um, For any regular listeners I might have, I did a podcast about a year and a half ago, shortly before the pandemic, um, with Senator Mary Landrieu, former Senator Mary Landrieu, um, the director of Mississippi's Department of Marine Resources, and a couple other folks to talk about GOMESA. Um, I'll sort of say in short, what GOMESA does is uh, allows revenue leasing from oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and ensures that funding, that, that money that's coming to the federal government is actually going back to those Gulf states, to those energy producing states for the purpose of coastal restoration and resilience. Um, it, you know, it takes, you know, where you're extracting resources, you're putting money back in to support those resources. Um so, Senator, my question for you is, uh, why why do you think this GOMESA was so important? And then, um, why do you think it fell a bit short? Why didn't it go far enough? Um, why is it important to make some of the changes that you're seeing that we're going to be discussing in the RISE Act? Louisiana has a coastal master plan to rebuild. It's going to cost about $50 billion over five years. And in it, we use nature's forces to rebuild land that have been lost from all the things we've just described. you got to finance it. And so what GoMesa does, it, again, it takes a portion of the revenue derived from lease sales and revenues uh, and, and, and um, royalty payments from oil and gas developed off the coast of Louisiana. And, it, and by our state's constitution, that money has to be used for coastal restoration. Uh, so we get about 37.5% of revenue from eligible leases, but not all leases are eligible. So there is a cap. And, and the overall cap is $500 million a year split between four states. So it's money, it's significant, but frankly, we need more to carry out our plan. Great. And let's turn to the RISE Act. So I think the RISE Act um, is, is a cool piece of legislation that uh, brings together both uh, revenue, direct revenue from offshore wind, as well as from uh, offshore oil and gas. Um, and maybe I'll just, I'll just leave this one wide open. Why don't you share um, with us how the RISE Act will impact GOMESA and, and what what that means for Gulf Coast communities. First, let me say what it means for the rest of the country. Yeah, great. We got an issue. Right now, Louisiana is the point of the spear in showing what happens to a city, excuse me, a, a state or a community as sea levels rise. But you could, I saw a picture in some newspaper at the Gold Coast of Chicago, that swanky place where the waters of Lake Michigan uh, are now lapping on the streets and, 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 and the beach has eroded so much that those swank condos are endangered. So another picture of uh, the coast of North Carolina, where they've since 1848 have lost, I'm, you know, off the top of my head, I won't get this quite right, 500 feet of beach. So something where you used to sit in the house and way over there, I can just see the water. Now the waves are pounding just before your house. And I can go around our nation with similar stories. So the RISE Act fundamentally addresses not just Louisiana's issues for coastal resiliency, but begins to address issues nationwide. Now, among the specific provisions that benefit Louisiana, uh, I mentioned this cap. We incre- um, currently there is a state revenue sharing cap. It's $375 million a year. We eliminate that. And we also increase the amount of GOMESA revenues shared with states from 375 to 50% uh, of the revenue. That is consistent with revenue sharing if you're an inland state like New Mexico or Colorado. 
Um, it also lifts the water, the land and water conservation funds funding cap of 125 million. It has some. Uh, it also makes some more leases available to increase the amount of money available. Um, and then I'll say that it also pre- uh, pre- protects Gomesa revenues from sequestration. So with all this, um, uh, we help not just Louisiana and the four, go- uh, four Gulf Coast states. We also do the land, water, and conservation. And there's also a portion in which we begin to take wind revenue and put that into a fund. It's going to be small at first, but over time, that wind revenue will climb. And that's where we think we begin to get even more benefits long term um, uh, from another source besides Louisiana's oil and gas. Thanks. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to talking with Senator Whitehouse in a bit more detail about wind, the first uh, offshore uh, commercial wind farm in the United States is is off the coast of Rhode Island, so he obviously has some expertise on that. Um, looking at these the GOMESA provisions, so to sort of summarize, it would lift the cap on the amount of money that could come back to any of the Gulf states uh, from revenue directed from offshore oil and gas. It would increase the percentage of revenues from 37.5% to 50%, um, and it would expand the eligibility uh, from oil and gas producing um, leases uh, that that happened prior to GOMESA becoming law. So if you've got some of these long producing leases, it would allow some of the funding, um, GOMESA funding there. So can, can, I mention, can I mention the fourth thing it does? Yeah, please do. It adds a fourth GOMESA beneficiary, if you will. It takes 12.5% and it adds it to the National Oceans and Coastal Security Fund. And this is a revenue fund that would uh, benefit the Great Lakes, and other shorelines besides the Gulf of Mexico for coastal erosion. This is a fund, I think Sheldon Whitehouse was the one who originally uh, had it established. Uh, But this is a way in which we begin to work for resiliency. Another way besides the wind revenue, which is a little bit in the by and by, but immediately have a regular source of revenue to begin to address resiliency issues wherever that coastline is. Thanks. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a good program. It's been operational for, I don't know, five or six years now. Um, and I think it's been funded at sort of 30 million, but it comes from annual appropriation. So it depends on, you know, what the appropriators decide to do. So this would create a, a dedicated source for that um, that fund, which is a, a competitive program currently mostly administered by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for coastal resilience projects. So another excellent program. So it really makes, um, makes GOMESA not just a, a Gulf program, but actually a national program. Um, thanks for thanks for adding that. Um, so we've got this this bill moving forward, and again, going to be talking with Senator Whitehouse a bit more about some of the the wind components of it. Um, but I'd love to to just hear how this sort of how this developed. I, you know, frankly, I love how the Rise Act ties these two related topics together. Um, they're each a bit more regionally focused. Obviously, there's oil and gas considerations elsewhere. Gomesa brings that in. Um, uh, and wind, you know, wind is starting to develop all over the country. But because of where these are focused, the Gulf leans more Republican, the Northeast and New England, where offshore wind has been predominant, it leans more Democratic. They've, at least in my mind, unfortunately, become a little bit uh, partisan. But the RISE Act unites them in a bipartisan, multi-regional fashion. I mean, this is, you know, I was a political science major. This seems like political science 101. Um, but we don't often see it happen or don't see it happen often enough, in my opinion. Um, so, Senator, I was wondering if you could talk about really how you and Senator Whitehouse came together on this. What what inspired this collaboration? Yeah, so Sheldon uh, came to Louisiana 
and got to see the state's coastal management plan. And I'm just very grateful to him. He, he really came and looked in depth at what we are doing. He uh, gave us a compliment. Of all the states in the nation, he feels as if ours is most developed. Now, he's from Rhode Island. Obviously, a lot of exposure to rising sea levels. Communities that are on the beach are being threatened. And we just found common ground. Now, it helps that there's an economic factor. He's building wind farms off his coast. A lot of the boats that will be made to help build those wind farms, those boats will be made in South Louisiana. And so, you know, it's nice to have the environmental tie. It's nice to have the economic tie. Uh, and, and we share our concern. How do we preserve our respective states and how do we preserve all the coastal communities around the nation? So um, um, we've, we've, believe me, and there's some stuff we just totally disagree on. That's great. But let's move past that which we can agree to disagree and let's focus upon that upon which we do agree and occasionally give a little bit to get a little bit more from each's perspective. And I think we've been able to come up with a working relationship. I think that's great. I mean, that seems like what the Senate is all about is 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 forging relationships and, and coming to agreement where you can and you know maybe disagree on other things. And when you look at the the co-sponsor list for the Rise Act, it's you know it's impressive. You got some some folks who I would consider fairly, you know, fairly staunch liberals, um, you know, Brian Schatz from Hawaii and, and some folks from the Northeast and some fairly conservative members of, of Congress uh, from the Gulf Coast, Cindy Hyde-Smith and Roger Wicker. I mean, this is a, this is really a nice spectrum uh, co-sponsor. So I, I think it's, um, anyway, it excites me. It makes me feel good about working in coastal politics. Uh, so what is the game plan? How do we get this from being a cool bill with bipartisan co-sponsors to actually becoming law. What's, what's the next step here? So we introduced the version last Congress, but, you know, didn't advance very far. Um, this time we again tried to, frankly, I was an advocate for putting it within the infrastructure bill. Um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, it didn't quite get there. But there is increasing awareness of what we are doing. If you look at the percent of the nation's population that lives within 100 miles of the coast, it is a substantial percent. And if you look at the devastation and the expense to the federal taxpayer that is being caused by uh, hurricanes or by high water events, uh, by erosion of coastlines, if you look at the rising insurance, homeowners insurance rates and flood insurance rates for those who live upon coastal communities, it's going to create a demand for an answer. And we're working with White House's team to make sure we get a good CBO score. But we expect to get a lot of support from sportsmen's groups, environmental organizations, uh, wind, oil, gas, um, coastal communities, um, the police juries association and municipal associations, et cetera. Uh, we'll get a legislative hearing scheduled. But we feel as if we can get this passed, if not this Congress, then the next. Well, excellent. And, and uh you know, in addition to hosting this podcast, I um, run Coastal States Organization, which represents the coastal governors, and we are um, pleased to support this bill. It was sort of a no-brainer for us. It, it helps um, help states. Uh, it really directs money back to the states so they can manage the coastline in the way they see they see uh, best. So I think it's um, something we're really supportive of. Um, before I let you go, anything else you'd like to share about the Rise Act? Um, no. I actually think it points direction forward, not just in terms of you described of combining oil and gas, but it also does it all. It establishes unity between right and left. Let's do something proactive about our coastlines. And if you can do something 
bilateral, I mean, bipartisan to do something about a major existential issue. That's a good thing. I'd like to think we're going to be able to succeed. Excellent. Well, the, my final question is the one that I think gets my guests in the most trouble, particularly the politicians, because I'd like to ask, what is your favorite coastal area? We all do so much work on the coastline. There's always that one place that helps rejuvenate us. And I know politicians sometimes have a tough time identifying one spot so as not to uh, annoy some of their constituents. But do you have that favorite spot on the coast that you love to go and, and, and you know, get revived and, and ready to fight another day in the halls of Congress? Once or twice a year, my son and I go with a dentist friend of mine, a guy named Glenn Kidder. He's a great fisherman, a uh, great fisherman. And we'll go out of Lafitte, Louisiana, and he'll take us out there into the uh, marshes, and we will catch redfish and speckled trout and occasionally something else. And, uh, and it's just a blast. And I have pictures every year of my little boy when he was nine years old, didn't know how to fish until now he's a 27 year old man who catches more fish than I do and is quite proud of it. And so it's just been great to see that progression. So the feet Louisiana will always be special in my mind. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Senator. Thank you for your work on the rise act and, and uh, really appreciate your joining us today. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Senator Cassidy for joining me today. Uh, Senator Cassidy has really taken on the mantle of coastal senator from Louisiana. Louisiana has a long history of senators who have championed coastal causes, and um, Bill Cassidy has has embraced that, adopted that, and is is doing great work to um, help the coastal communities in his state. And now I'm looking forward to speaking to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who is one of the uh, well, a recurring guest on American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, this is his first time on the Capitol Beach, but he's he's been on ASPN podcasts two previous times. So we're delighted to have Senator Sheldon Whitehouse joining us on ASPN. Well, we, we just heard from Senator Cassidy with an overview of the RISE Act, um, the bill that you guys introduced. Uh, and I, But before we, we spoke about the specifics of the bill, I asked him to start by sharing some of the challenges uh, facing coastal Louisiana uh, from various coastal hazards. And I'd like to offer you the chance to do the same for uh, Rhode Island. And obviously, when you look at a map, Rhode Island is very, very coastal. Um, but can you talk a little bit about sort of what the coastal threats are facing coastal uh facing Rhode Island and why coastal resilience has become such an important issue for you? Well, we um, have done some of the best coastal mapping in the country. Our Coastal Resources Management Council figured out pretty quickly that FEMA maps were inadequate. And so they did real mapping. And what it revealed was an enormous risk of just plain bathtub sea level rise and then, of course, all of that exacerbated by the danger of storm and storm surge, pushing more of the sea up onto our coast. And Rhode Island being a small coastal state, indeed the ocean state, there's not a whole lot we can afford to give back to the ocean. So um, it's we're not losing as much as Louisiana is. Uh, they're really in harm's way and extraordinary ways. But Rhode Island is precious to me, and I want to defend its seaside boundaries as best I can, rather than have us flooded out because we can't be responsible about managing our carbon emissions. Yeah. If you do too much retreat in Rhode Island, you end up in Massachusetts, and who wants that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're going to get into the the RISE Act, and a lot of what I want to talk to you about the RISE Act is um, is how it connects uh, offshore wind power with coastal resilience. 
Um, and I'm sure many of our listeners have have been following the news and know sort of the expansion of um, of offshore wind and, and certainly the Biden administration's push to expand offshore wind. Uh, something very, I assume, near and dear to your heart, Block Island Wind Farm off of Rhode Island was the first commercial offshore wind production. Um, can you maybe, before we dig into the, the bill, talk a little bit about what your expectations are for increases in offshore wind production over the next 10, 15, 20 years? It's a market that is going to grow very dramatically. Once Rhode Island showed that the siting problem could be solved, then very big companies from around the world came into the Northeast, um, where the Atlantic seaboard has a plateau that makes construction much easier than on the Pacific, for instance. Um, And we got flooded with applications, so much so that the federal government uh, agency, BOEM, is pretty much backed up uh, with applications. And President Biden has announced that his goal is 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power, which is a very, very big um, investment. So we're looking forward to this being really significant. And we need to get through the early stages of siting it properly and making sure that use conflicts with other folks who use the ocean are resolved in a sensible, amicable way. And I think it's also worth noting that while Rhode Island led the way with Block Island Wind Farm, offshore wind is is looking to expand across the country. We've there are permits for Virginia, even the Carolinas, out on the West Coast in Oregon and Florida. Oh, sorry, Oregon and Washington, and even in in the Gulf, they're starting to explore what wind potential they might have. So um, definitely a exciting opportunity for offshore wind. But that will also, as you mentioned, Boehm, um, there are lease fees associated with siting offshore wind and how that money gets spent is, um, or how that money will get spent is, is really the, um, one of the main purposes of the RISE Act. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about how the RISE Act would direct funding from offshore wind leases to coastal resilience projects and how that, how that's important to, um, to coastal communities? Yes. Um, at the moment, all the revenues from offshore wind leasing will simply go into the federal treasury. Uh, that is very different than revenues from offshore oil and gas facilities. And it's a difference that does not advance the cause of offshore wind. So we want to do two things. We want to make sure that the uh, abutting state gets revenues in the same way that states get revenues from offshore oil and gas. Uh, We're never going to do offshore oil and gas up in New England, up in the Northeast. Um, So it's helpful, you know, to get the revenues in. But down in Louisiana, uh, it's going to be really important to have offshore wind provide commensurate revenues to the state that offshore oil and gas does, because otherwise it's going to be operating at a very big disadvantage um, with regard to the state's interest in developing the resource. So um, we're really hoping that we can get that piece done. Uh, The other big element of funding will go to the Oceans and Coasts Fund, which I hope over time can become a uh, sister fund to the Land and Water Conservation Fund which is a fine thing, except that properly you'd call it the upland and freshwater 
conservation fund because so little of its money goes to coastal or oceans projects. So um, we're trying to basically grow a parallel fund that can do for oceans and coasts what the Land and Water Conservation Fund does for upland and freshwater. I think that's great. Um, yeah, we've I've had the opportunity to talk to um, staff from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation who administers um, the National Coastal Resilience Fund uh, that, that, that's funded through this uh, Ocean and Coastal Security Act. The, I like that, the sister uh, program to LWCF. Um, as far as I understand, it's currently just funded through appropriations and potentially increased funding um, from uh, infrastructure legislation, but there is no sort of direct source of funding for that. And that's what this bill would provide. Is that correct? So this would be sort of a... a Correct. This would provide a persistent, lasting source of funding for the Oceans and Coastal Fund, because um, we've been basically just gasping along, you know, with sort of 50 to $75 million appropriations, which is microscopic when you consider what the need is that coastal communities face. And um, we got half a billion in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but because that's spread over 10 years, it's not quite as big a number as it sounds, um, but it's an improvement and I'm happy to have it and that will ride on top of other appropriated spending. And then reconciliation, we're working on trying to get even more money in so that this can really be launched as a true uh, sister fund to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So that's absolutely excellent, but a, a 100% agree that we need to create this sort of sustainable source of funding so that you're not relying on these one-time big bills or, you know, the whims of the appropriators on, in whatever the political climate is. Um, so I think that's that's just fantastic. Um, the other thing I sort of want to talk is sort of how this bill moves forward. And I, you know, I, I talked to Senator Cassie, I just, I love the fact that this bridges two sort of regional differences and, and and sort of somewhat partisan differences, right? You guys in New England tend to be more democratic. And so offshore wind has sort of become a bit more of a democratic issue. Uh, drilling in the Gulf, you know, just because of the sort of congressional makeup has been more of a, a Republican focus issue and you guys are bringing it together. Um, Senator Cassidy really credited you for visiting Louisiana uh, to really connect and understand the issue and, and sort of forge that relationship that allowed um, the RISE Act to move forward. He also I think he was also planning on visiting Rhode Island before the pandemic struck, but I don't know. Just wanted to sort of see if you could talk about how you decided to align your work on wind power with Cassidy's Go Mesa bill. What 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 brought you guys together to to move this comprehensive legislation? By far and away, um, it was the fact that we both have coastal states, and that. In the case of Rhode Island, we're already beginning to experience changes, but it's primarily in fisheries um, and in the ocean ecosystem from warming. Um, there are a few beaches that have been badly degraded and eroded, um, <clears throat> but by and large, we're in a fairly familiar position. If somebody had been here 50 years ago and came back and looked off you know, Castle Hill and Newport, everything would look pretty much the same. Not so for Louisiana. They are losing an enormous amount of 
their land and even more is predicted to be lost as the land subsides and the sea levels rise. So we had a very uh, significant common predicament, although ours is a little bit more in the future. And then um, we both have an interest in offshore wind. Um, and I think what Louisiana can look forward to as we get off of fossil fuels is needing an alternative uh, activity out in the Gulf. And they've got a lot of infrastructure out there, but if it's not going to be producing oil and gas, what are they going to be doing? Um, and I think offshore wind can be a replacement for offshore oil and gas and the skills that they've developed down there in terms of servicing the out offshore platforms, bringing energy ashore from offshore platforms, um, having the trade craft for constructing things that have to live in offshore, often hostile environments, um, transitions very well from oil and gas to offshore wind. So we had those two very strong native connections with oceans and coasts and offshore wind. Plus, we get along personally quite well. So a good person to work with. Excellent. I, I love that. I mean, this just seems like sort of old school politics in, in the best way possible, where you have a personal relationship, common interests, able to sort of see two similar but not identical issues and, and piece them together to advance, uh, you know, advance coastal resilience, which is going to be critical, not just for your states, but for the nation. Um, wh what's the next step for the RISE Act? Uh, I know we were hoping to see, you introduced it uh, last year. It's been reintroduced. I hope um, we'd like to see it actually become law and not just be a marker bill. Where do you, how do you see this moving forward? Well, we had a, we had a near miss on the um, bipartisan infrastructure bill. It was pretty close to getting in. It was very much in play. So the good news about that is that it gave a lot of people a chance to get a look at it and kick the tires and uh, see it as a you know real bipartisan legislative prospect. And I think that has moved it up um, as a priority and as a prospect for future um, infrastructure and spending bills. Uh, the reconciliation is not going to be a good target for it because it requires some policy changes that are unlikely to get through parliamentary scrutiny when you're doing reconciliation, the uh, 50 vote method that we're working on right now. But we do have to continue to pass appropriations bills. Um, we do have to continue to fund the government. And as those opportunities come up, I think we're well placed to take advantage of them. Uh, excellent. And I, I imagine it's been it's been a couple of years since we've had a full on energy bill, you know, at some point in the next some point in the next few years, I would imagine um, that would move forward. And, and speaking of energy, have you had the support of Senators Manchin and Murkowski on this bill? Have you discussed with them how this how this could move forward? I would say uh, yes, um, but in the context of trying to put the pieces together of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, they supported it conceptually, but they just couldn't make it work in this bill. Um, but I think, and I've been told uh, by both of them that they're eager to try to find ways to make it happen. 
in uh, in future measures. Great. Well, that's that's good to hear. I know the infrastructure bill was a uh, tough negotiation, and certainly we're pleased to see the kind of level of coastal funding that that's provided in that. Um, and so, hopefully, you know, next big bill that moves can can include the Rise Act. Um, uh, before I say farewell, anything else you'd like to share? Any final closing arguments for for the Rise Act or, or what's needed for coastal resilience uh, and wind power? No, I think um, the only point that I would make is that I think the Rise Act, in addition to helping coasts a lot um, and giving a source for funding for coastal communities and coastal groups that are now very often overlooked. Um, It will also be a big boost in our climate efforts. Because I think when you send a signal to Texas, to Louisiana, uh, to uh, Mississippi, that um, we don't give you any revenues at all. If you invest in offshore wind, we only give you revenues if you continue with oil and gas. Um, That sets up an unfair competition. Uh, I think the president very much, President Biden wants to develop offshore wind uh, in the Gulf. I think there's a huge opportunity there. They can do a lot of it. Um, It will really help on climate, but it's hard to set the offshore wind industry up against an oil and gas industry um, with states making a lot of decisions in that environment and have offshore wind have a disfavored position in terms of the revenues that it brings to the states. So I think this is re- it's a really important gateway bill to light up the prospects of Gulf Coast offshore wind which um, I think are very real, but are presently handicapped uh, by the revenue problem. That's great. That's, I hadn't thought about that at all. It's a really interesting, interesting point. Um, so my final question is hopefully a, a fun personal one that I ask all my guests um, is, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time doing work and you in the halls of Congress and in the Senate, but um, we need to be rejuvenated by visiting coastlines. I think it's part of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to our soul, if nothing else, to, to reconnect to the ocean and to the water. So what is your favorite beach or coastal area? Where do you go to get rejuvenated? I would say uh, Mackerel Cove, um, which is a cove, an inlet uh, in Jamestown that separates Connecticut Island from Beavertail. Uh, There's a thin beach that connects the two with a little road on it. But Mackerel Cove itself is a beautiful, beautiful place to sail into. And if you've got a strong wind blowing, you kind of go sloshing and battering your way down Narragansett Bay, and then you turn into Mackerel Cove, you still have the breeze, but the water is smooth because the fetch hasn't been built up and you can have these wonderful, uh, smooth, beautiful sails in this just gorgeous, deep um, inlet. And that's a pretty special place to me. If you don't have a sailboat to get there, you can go right across Narragansett Bay to the Inn at Castle Hill, where they have Adirondack chairs set out on the lawn and you can watch the sailboats that populate Narragansett Bay go by and enjoy a 
gin tonic, whatever refreshment you like. And it's about the nicest place to have a drink in the evening and see the coast that I've ever seen. Well, that sounds delightful. Senator, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate all your work on this bill and all your ongoing work on on coastal resilience, setting up the the Oceans and Coast Fund. I I think, you know, we don't have a stronger champion in Congress um, than you on coastal issues. So appreciate all your efforts on this and, and look forward to seeing the bill pass. Well, thanks so much for having me on.